As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for a rare Friday afternoon episode of The Audible. Bruce, they say it's not smart to put out content on a Friday. Uh, We're doing it because there's some news to talk about for one, but also in a weird coincidence, and we didn't even realize it until this week, we're both going on vacation next week at the same exact time. Yes. By the way, who is it that's, uh, who is the they in saying it's not smart to put out content? And what do those same people say about basically telling people yeah we're gonna have a playoff expansion and then eight months later (laughs) having to just kind of let everybody down with uh the sad reality i don't i don't know where the don't put new content on friday thing comes from but not ari fleischer i promise you so good segue um friday morning this is not a shock by any means this had been uh pretty obvious that we were going to get to this for a while but the CFP made it official. Four more years. Four more years of the four-team playoff. The commissioners could not come to an agreement on an expanded playoff, so they're going to ride out the existing contract that goes through the 2025 season. Any 8-12 team, whatever changes, will not take place until there's a new contract in 2026. And that was evident from, you know, when I was in Indianapolis, being around those commissioners, it was clear they were at a standstill, but the presidents had asked them, who, who really want to get this done, were like, meet one more time. Just meet one more time. That meeting was going to be in early March in Dallas, and uh, apparently the commissioners got on a video call or something this week and said, um, yeah, that there's no point. This isn't changing. So they went ahead and made that announcement, um, which, like you said, is uh, not what I would have expected last June when with great fanfare they unveiled their proposal to go to 12 teams. Yeah, they were they were very giddy about patting each other on the back and how it was for the good of football. And and there was a strategy behind this with like leak it. I don't know, would they leak it like a month earlier or let it leak and then... No, they they went ahead and figuring it would leak. They went ahead and, held, went ahead and sent a press release and held a formal press conference to let everybody know this is the model that we're going to be discussing. It's a staggering uh, 
an aptitude of the PR side of the CFP because they built up expectations. Um, I'm curious for a couple of things, and this is obviously all anecdotal, but how much, like, do you think from reading it and you're more engaged in your mailbag than certainly, you know, I am on that side of it, but like, how, how disappointed do you think fans actually are by this? And let's start with that. I mean, is this more sports writers lamenting it or do you think this is more fan driven? Um, I don't think there is by any means unanimity out there uh, in the among the public that they should even expand the playoff at all. There are plenty of people who think that an expanded playoff will devalue the regular season. Um, there are people who th- you know I hear from who you know we, there's not even four great teams right now, as evidenced by the blowouts and the championship games. Why would you add even more teams that are worse than those teams? So I don't think it's by any means. Uh, universal, and then even among the people who do want expansion, who I do think are the majority, not all of them were on board with twelve. Some, you know, a lot of people thought it should be eight. So, but I do think that uh, I what I, where I do think there's a lot of agreement is most people are dissatisfied with the current system, and maybe the the frustrating part is that it's the same teams every year winning it or playing for it, and obviously changing the playoff format is not going to weaken Alabama like that's 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 just what's happening in the sport right now um, so I do think that I would guess the majority probably the considerable majority wanted some sort of change and they don't want to wait four more years for it and um, but what's most ridiculous Bruce is that the people in the room all of them agree all 10 commissioners and Jack Swarbrook agree that the current system is not working that they need to expand it but they couldn't agree on the on how or when, and so it's just not going to happen. Yeah, and so here's the here's the the spin forward because I saw um, some of the comments. George Klyovkov, the relatively new commissioner of the Pac-12, has made on social media. Greg Sankey has done. You know, I know he's talked to several reporters about this earlier today. I mean, do you think this is going to? I mean, are you optimistic that this is going to get done? four years from now well the thing is four years from now you're starting from scratch and you don't see that this had to be unanimous because there's it's more than one contract but for simplicity's sake let's just say it's one contract one big contract with 11 parties that signed it and so to to revise it right you need unanimity there is no contract after 2025 and basically you know, the ACC, which which is one of the main, if not the main party that blocks this from happening, has no leverage after 2025. The other conferences are going to go ahead and do this, and either you join it or you do don't. Do you think the Big so, Ten is going to do it? Big Ten has, uh, Big Ten has power. Well, I think <laughs> I think that's that's a good point you bring up. If I, you know, you love to play the percentages game on this podcast so i'm gonna throw one at you what percentage chance do you think kevin warren will still be the big 10 commissioner in 2026 mm, that is not where i thought you were going with that um because i think t- the answer to your question depends on if he's still the commissioner or not i mean i don't know it'd be like kind of i don't know if i said 50 50 there's a there's a long time obviously his predecessor jim delaney had an exceptionally long run but I think it's just a different era and a different time. I think this job, he, he took over right when the pandemic was hitting. And I think 
this job has probably taken, it probably feels like dog years for him that he's been in it. Um, I don't know. Am I, Jim Delaney stayed as long as he did because he was very good at his job. And he made his members a lot of money and he kept them happy. And the Big Ten's going to make a lot of money in a couple of years, no matter who the commissioner is, because their TV deal is coming up. and They're, they're going to make a fortune. You know, They've already made a fortune, a fortune, but an even bigger fortune. Uh, it came out this week in Sports Business Journal that, anal- you know, this is not a fact, but analysts believe they could go from $440 million a year right now to a billion in 2024. Uh, that seems optimistic to me, but it's a, they're going to make a lot. And, but, but what I'm saying, but Kevin Warren's whole, you know, Jim Phillips has been kind of the villain in this because he has, you know, said that he was the only one who was just like, we're not doing this. We don't think the playoffs should expand early. We think the, that the college sports world should be focused more on other issues, like figuring out how to regulate NIL and transfer, you know, and so philosophically, we're opposed to expanding it early. Whereas Kevin Warren's only real public opposition was that he thinks the Power Five conferences should have automatic berths. But that's fishy to me. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that's a reason you block the whole playoff. And then I just don't think there's a lot of confidence in him within his own conference. Obviously, he didn't handle COVID very well, but it's kind of continued beyond that. He, he's a complete newcomer to college athletics, and it just doesn't seem like he's figuring it out. And that's kind of the theme of this whole situation is that that working group that came up with the 12 team proposal those were four commissioners and, and an, well, three commissioners and an ad who have been doing this for a long long time and the people who sprouted up in and opposed it are people who are two people who are fairly new to being a commissioner and george kliakoff's kind of playing both sides and saying you know we support anything but he's also trying to stick up for the Rose Bowl, and there's complications there. So it's just a, I think that a complete distrust between the older guard commissioners and the newer people. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how you you mend that. I think it takes time. I mean, so you you asked it to me, and I copped out and basically said, oh, 50-50. What percent chance would you give the Kevin Warren still the the commissioner in the in the Big Ten in four years from now? 25. Oh, that's a smaller number. Yeah. I should probably look up when, how long his contract is before making that prediction. But um, but also, I mean, to, to have an expanded playoff in 2026, those discussions are going to begin probably two years before that. And so I would give a better chance he's still a commissioner then. Um, but, no, let's think about this. If it's if you're starting from scratch, the, the Big Ten can't not be in the playoff. Like, they... Uh, you know, at some point you have to listen to your own fans. And I don't think Big Ten fans, you know, I don't think there's many Big Ten fans left who cling to the old days of we just want to go to the Rose Bowl and have a Big Ten Pac-12 Rose Bowl. Certainly Ohio State fans aren't that way. They want to go win national championships. So, you know, I, I can't see him, like, opposing a playoff entirely. It's would he would he say it should only be eight? Would he continue to be all over the Power Five? I don't know. All I know is that and there are 11 parties, and eight of them were fully on board with the format that they came up with in, uh, in June. And then you had the ACC blocking it philosophically, the Big Ten holding on to AQs, and the Pac-12 trying to look out for the Rose Bowl. So you would think the parties with the most leverage will will lead the discussion for, for what's next. Hey, on this similar subject... 
um, the alliance and the number of Big uh, Big Ten games played in the Big Ten calendar in the conference. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Gene Smith, who's probably as powerful an AD as there is certainly in that conference and one of the most powerful uh, ADs in college sports, talked about his preference on that in terms of, like, they're not going to go to eight games if they're at nine. Um my read on this is, you know, we in the media, certainly at the athletic and other places, hyped up the uh, the alliance quite a bit, you know. And remember, they did not have a contract. I remember actually asking that on the conference call. Like it's like, yeah, we're looking each other in the eye, and yeah, okay, good luck with that, right? But whatever, we're like five months past that or seven months past that. Do you think that thing got overblown quite a bit? Um, I think it was, I don't think it was overblown because it's not every day that three conferences band up to basically get back at the SEC, but it always didn't make a lot of sense. And it always seemed kind of, I mean, the fact that there was no signature on anything and that they, oh, we looked in each other's eyes, it always seemed a little shaky. And, and I think this week you saw the first signs that it's falling apart, um, it was not a good week for the. So your answer is yes. You you basically well, just did a Gary Barta there. <laughs> you did Gary Barta work. You said no, and that you said one thing, and then your answer completely went. You know, told the real truth. Well, you said was it overblown by the media? Like, as in, should the media have just ignored that they were doing this thing? Or I don't think we should have ignored yeah. it, but it, it was it was it was ti- it was touted as something. You know, like it was going to be a lot more of a of a significant thing. And I don't think it's going to be particularly significant. I could be wrong, but it just like it seemed very amorphous and vague. And yeah, they're coming together. I don't know exactly what this means. And I still don't know what it means. It just feels less weighty than it did before. Yeah, I just feel like I feel like it was overhyped. Um, and I'm not saying any one person overhyped it. I just think it was, you know, it just became this kind of, um, this kind of, not a boogeyman, but just kind of this thing that I think people were like expecting it to do something that I don't think anybody who was on board was like knew what it actually would be, but it just sounded, you know, it's just sounded (laughs) interesting. (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. I don't think as, as, as we've had time to, to, as time has gone on. I don't think the three parties in this alliance were in it. I think they were each in it or each went into it for completely different reasons. George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, was the one most touting the scheduling aspect of it. And I'll be honest, in con- in theory, it's a great concept. The idea that they would, uh, not just that they would play each other, but that they would do it kind of ACC Big Ten challenge style and wait until the season before to announce the matchups, which has always made more sense to me than scheduling a, not, a home and home for 2036. So, you know, that, that to me was, you know, an appealing idea. And, um, and he was saying they were going to drop from nine to eight conference games to make it happen for the PAC 12 TV deal. That's frankly, or the next PAC 12 TV deal that actually makes a lot of sense. Cause I think their teams playing big 10 teams is probably more appealing to TV than playing each other. That being said, I never understood why the Big Ten would want to do that. And I never understood why the Big Ten was in this alliance in the first place. The whole like-minded values thing, blah, blah, blah. The Big Ten is more like the SEC, whether they want to admit it or not. 
than the ACC and the Pac-12. Or I should say they're in more of a position of power. And Gene Smith said it out loud the other day, and I think that's what caught a lot of people by surprise. He said, we don't really think of ourselves as be having that much in common with the ACC in the in the in the um, Pac-12, and that they benefit a lot more from this possible arrangement than we would. And so now he's an AD. He's not the ultimate decision maker, but he's a really influential one. And I think that them calling that press conference kind of out of nowhere and him saying that stuff was very strategic. I think he wants to squash it. So it's not dead yet, but um, not looking good. He's basically saying he what he said was, yeah, we talked about that a little at first about possibly going from nine to eight conference games. And you know what? We decided we'd rather play each other. And that's bad news for the Pac-12 because they he really, really wants that scheduling thing to happen. I just don't think it helped the Big Ten at all. And I think the ACC, and then I don't know what the ACC's angle is. It just seems like they're on this soapbox right now ever since the SEC thing where they want to like be the moral arbiters of college sports and somehow teaming up with those two conferences was going to accomplish that. Yeah, I don't know. It's college football. It's the most dysfunctional of all the sports. It's probably not run by Don King. Um, so it's, or you know, it's just, I don't know. Like, I, I always feel like that it just kind of, hey, I'm going to react to what's going on on the field and the games itself. But when it comes to all this other stuff, it's just like, I'll believe it when they when they, when they kind of get there. You know, it's just... Nobody's in charge. It would be a lot different deal if there was like a commissioner of college football or a or a board that oversees college football. But it's every man to himself, and you're really seeing that on full display right now. Nobody, uh, I think, the pettiness that resulted from the SEC taking Texas and Oklahoma is is playing uh, way too much of a role in making decisions for the that affect the entire sport. I mean, this decision over the playoff. Billions of dollars are at stake in that decision, and and this is how this is how you arrive at it. I mean, it's it's so screwed up. Um, you know. So would it be fair to say, just the last thing on this, that the the probably the one group of people who probably are very happy about this would be the guys wearing or the people wearing the bowl jackets. Yes. Well, it depends on which bowl jacket you're talking about. I mean, that's the other thing is the plan that they had in mind actually would have benefited. The New Year's Six Bowls quite a bit. They would go from, in their plan, going from, you know, they right now they host a playoff game once every three years, and then the other two, they're kind of a afterthought. And in this plan, they would host a playoff game of either a quarterfinal or a semifinal every year. So I think those guys, possibly except for the Rose Bowl, are disappointed. But if you're the Citrus Bowl, Outback Bowl, Alamo Bowl, yes. I mean, there's no question a 12-team playoff was going to make your game pretty meaningless, pretty, pretty irrelevant. So, yeah, but I think they're just delaying the inevitable. It's not like we're going to get to 2026 and they're going to say we're going to stick with the, with what we did for the last 12 years, because I mean, imagine the, if the PAC 12 still doesn't make it for four more years, the damage that's going to do to that conference's brand, the ACC going on this, this big stand, you know, what if Clemson's downturn last year turns out to be a bigger you know, a deeper thing and they're just not going to get back to being that program and there's not an obvious powerhouse to step in, then they start missing the playoff every year. Well, and, if, um, if, yeah, if you, if the PAC 12 does not have a team make the playoff in the next four years, 
something for for Lincoln Riley went horribly wrong. That's true. Like that's their that's their best hope right now. Like I don't think I think that has more to do with can Lincoln Riley and that staff fix USC more than anything that the CFP can do. I mean, I think it's that like if if they're not if the Pac-12 does not have a team in four years in the playoff, um, either Lincoln Riley's coaching in the NFL or something has gone really wrong there. But remember, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I think I agree to for the most part. But Lincoln Riley had a couple really good teams at Oklahoma that didn't make the playoff because there's no margin for error. Um, you know, you, the Pac-12. Like I think people are assuming that Lincoln that within a couple years USC will become head and shoulders above everybody else in the Pac-12, or that they'll, you know, the, the conference as a whole is so weak they should have no trouble running through it. Um, but you know, you go ten and two in the Pac-12 or eleven and two, you're not making the playoff. No, and I think look, you had a really good year, but you're not making the playoff. You know, my point on them when Caleb Williams went there was the roster is really underwhelming beyond that, and so that's where the challenges are going to come in. But again, four years is a long time. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second. But now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So we have uh, a couple other stories that you and I are both doing uh, independent of each other that we wanted to talk about a little bit. We're going to talk about yours first. And since I mentioned Lincoln Riley. uh, But these are stories, to be clear, that are not actually finished yet. Uh, yes, but they are stories that hopefully by the time you were, we want to tease them for Monday, they're going up on the athletic on Monday. We couldn't wait till Monday to do the podcast. So we're going to mention them now. 
Okay. And we should preface this by saying me, as somebody who barely graduated college and took six years to get out, I would have loved to have Stu Mandel as my grader because he is a very soft Oh, touch. yeah. Like you, like you would so, be I was referring to, and usually I do this earlier than now, but the coaching carousel seemed like it wasn't going to end. Um, my annual coaching grade hire, coaching hire grades. And he's suggesting that I was too easy. But if it were you, I find it hard to believe you'd be giving out a bunch of C's and D's. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do these because I feel like for that very reason. Um, I'm not saying I would have as many A's of your power five. You had five A grades, which is quite a bit. Um, and I'll be honest, when I looked at these, I was like, there's not a lot of stuff here I would nitpick with you. Um, and I don't want to give away the store here too much, but among your A's, Lincoln Riley and Mario Cristobal and Billy Napier were the three A's or A pluses. Um, and then you also had Brian Kelly and Brent Venables. And I don't think I would disagree with the order or the grades on any of them. Um, I was surprised that you had Texas Tech uh, new head coach Joey McGuire as a B plus. That's a really strong grade. Um, well, you know, I don't know much about Joey McGuire. I'll admit, but and I don't necessarily didn't I didn't necessarily go into it thinking I would give that a higher grade. But as I started to uh, think about it some more, I guess I just hadn't like stopped and really thought about Texas Tech's new coaching hire, and it's like. Well, and then I also say that before I say that, because I waited so long to do this, he's been the coach for three months already. And so you already kind of are seeing the first signs of what impact he's going to have. Do you know they have the number five recruiting class in the country right now? I mean, it's very early, so that's not going to stick. But yeah, because yeah. he's so, you know, deeply entrenched in the high school football scene there, he was, he was the head coach of Cedar Hill High uh, in the Dallas area for a long, long time. They are going to be able to, I think they're going to be able to like they've always been a program that you you know when the recruiting rankings come out you see Texas Tech they're like 36th or 44th or something like that. I think his his uh, connections in the high school scene they could become a much better recruiting program, and if that's the case, they could you know move up in the in the Big 12 pecking order. So you know I think when I was doing the other thing I would say is it's not very hard to give. Uh, an A plus to Lincoln Riley or an A to Mario like Brian Kelly like I just felt like the, I don't need the order to be here's all the established head coaches and then here's all the less established people like in that exact order because some of these guys that you don't know that much about are going to end up being really good and vice versa I don't know I don't have any idea what yeah. kind of coach, head coach Dan Lanning is going to be I was going to say that. I mean, you give him a B, and I, would, I was going to say the same thing. Like, we know he had a ridiculous amount of talent on his side of the ball at Georgia. He's now in a part of the country that he's never really worked. He was briefly at ASU, but um, I, I have no idea. For, somebody to, for me go. to give somebody a but, C you know, or a D, I mean, I was looking back at some recent ones. I gave Colorado State a D for Steve Adazio. I remember whatever year Kansas hired Charlie Weiss, I gave them an F. Like, it's got to be just colossal incompetence to, to get that kind of grade. Okay, so let me ask you this. You, this one surprised me a little bit. The one grade of the Power Fives that I was like, hmm. Uh, you gave Brent Pry a C plus. Why so low? I think we talked about that a couple months ago when we were kind of talking about coaching hires. And 
I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying he's a bad coach. He's actually been a very good defensive coordinator. It just seems kind of random. Uh, he was a GA under Frank Beamer 25 years ago. I'm not sure that's the reason you would go hire somebody. Um, I think there were bigger names. It is a, it is a relatively similar yeah, recruiting it, there were, though. You know, I think we didn't we say at one point we thought Virginia Tech should hire should have hired Jamie Chadwell. Yeah, but you and I have both probably get, tried to hire Jamie Chadwell yeah. like six times. Like I, I, and I'm not saying we would have been wrong on it. Brent Pry qualifies I, as somebody I, who, like Dan Lanning, you just you don't know. He could end up being great. He could end up being. Uh, it's hard to predict that one. Um, I think I mostly did it because I had to give somebody a C. Because <laughs> then you'd be if I had given no nothing lower than a B minus, you would say I'm the world's most generous grader. Yeah, of the most interesting ones, uh, the guys I'm most curious about, like, I'm fascinated to see how Kalen DeBoer does at Washington. He did exceptionally well as an NAIA head coach, made an impression on people positively as an OC in the Big Ten, and had a nice quick start at Fresno. So he's one I could see doing very well. Again, it's what it comes back to, like, what is very well, but then you get some of these other ones like we just talked about no idea like i like joey mcguire's two coordinator hires i like zach kitley i think that's a good hire i think that ties in he's been there he's a very good offensive mind he's creative i like tim deruder i think he'll help so that part i like no idea on dan lanning uh no real idea on tony elliott or brent pry i know those guys did good jobs as assistants Uh, at least jake dickert the who was the interim I mean, he did a really nice job in his brief time as the Washington State head coach. As far as the group of fives, um, similarly all over the place, but it's an interesting mix of people. I am with you. I think Joe Moorhead was a huge get for Akron. He's got a lot of ties there. We know he's a really good offensive coach. He's got head coaching experience. I think it's a good fit. I think that's a big bargain for them. Jay Norvell did well at Nevada. I think that's an upgrade for CSU. You know, but then you start getting into, you know, like some of these, I don't know, like the names, your lowest grade on the whole board, um, I can't say I disagree with it, is Clay Helton. Because of all the guys on here, with the exception probably of Jim Mora and Jerry Kill, we probably know the most about Clay Helton. Now, he's in a very different job in a very different place. Um. I don't know. Were you tempted to give him worse than a no, C? No, because you know it's it's. Uh, I mean, sometimes the way people talk about Clay Helton, you would think he went like twelve and forty at USC. You know, he did win a Rose Bowl. Uh, things went south from there, um, and this isn't going to be USC. You know, I'm not ruling out the possibility that he has some success at Georgia Southern. I don't think. People might not realize this. Georgia Southern has a very proud football tradition going back to their FCS days. I think people realize it. They know the the legend. You know, I hear it a lot whenever I mention Schnellenberger. Hey, shouldn't Irk yeah. Russell be in there? And they're right. He well, probably should be in there. They fire coaches there. Like they don't. They're not going to like you know a couple minor bowl games or seven and six is not good enough there. The guy they just fired. Uh, went ten and three a couple years ago, Chad Lunsford. So, I think the bar that Clay Helton's going to have to hit is like the Sun Belt version of what the bar he was going to have to hit at USC, and I think that's going to be hard to do. 
of all the coaches in the group of five, give me two that you're you're very fascinated to see how they do. Don't say Moorhead. Um, one is Stan Drayton, uh, who, if you follow college football, you know him as a very successful running backs coach for a very long time. When it was coaching Ezekiel Elliott at Ohio State, B. John Robinson now. He was Brian Westbrook's coach at Villanova. And, but, you know, I think has remained to, you know, how many running back coaches become household names? Not really, right? So he's getting a shot um, at Temple, which you talk about, you know, hires that felt doomed from the start. Rod Carey did not impress anybody. He yeah, didn't make yeah. it very long. Um, he has some ties. He, he, Like I said, he went to college in Pennsylvania. He coached at Villanova. That was a long time ago. I'm um, just curious to see how he does now that he has a shot running a program and a program that's, you know, in the AAC and has had recent success. Um, so I'm curious on that one. I think the most, the one of them, it's, this has totally gone under the radar, but what happened at Hawaii with Todd Graham being run out of there, uh, and then June Jones bowed out of the coaching search. So now you got Timmy. After, lobby, after lobbying for the job and then getting offered it, getting offered a... A very unrealistic set of circumstances. They him to keep, didn't they want? Didn't they, very they public. To dictate to him <laughs> who he could hire as assistant coaches. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, it, I mean, there was just a lot of things that were kind of unrealistic for him to take the job in the, under those circumstances, and then it became very public that he he talked about it and they talked about it in ways that usually don't happen. And then Timmy Chang, who was a great player there. Great player for June Jones uh, ended up getting the job. Yeah, I mean, if you're a college football fan of uh, uh, like maybe 35 years or older, um, you remember Timmy Chang. He was a legend there. He was putting up, I mean, now there's a lot of quarterbacks that hit those kind of numbers, but he was putting up like insane passing numbers every year in that in that offense. Um, and so, so I think it it made a lot of sense for them to bring him in. You know, the the fan base, the actually even more than the fan base, the community the former players everybody very fractured from the todd graham experiment and so of course you're going to unite behind timmy chang he's hawaii football i just don't know if he's has the experience to run a program he was a wide receivers coach so um and hadn't been in coaching for that long frankly so will he i think it would be a great story if timmy chang leads hawaii to glory he's he's there He's there, Pat Fitzgerald. You know, he's the he's he would be that kind of guy. Um, I just don't know if he can do it. Well, I know that as much as you would love to go to Hawaii, our editor has put you on. I guess you, from what I understand, three of the stops you were going to for this spring, as we can share with our listeners, you were going to see Don Brown <laughs> at UMass, Jerry Kill in Las Cruces, and then our buddy Jim Mora in yeah, Stores, Yeah, I'm going to take on that. Trip. I don't know where of... you came up with that itinerary quite, quite, but uh, yeah. So now that we've given away all Which the grades, of those three I don't know why has the... the article, but if you, if you I'm not saying to, what the theathletic.com slash the audible, $1 a month right now, $1 a month for six months, tremendous deal. And then you'll also be able to read this story that Bruce and Antonio Morales are writing that's going to go up Monday as well. Tell us about that. All right. So we have been working on what coaches look for when they turn on the film in recruits from every position. What's the thing that jumps out at them? Why? And it's been fascinating. I mean, I've talked to a ton of coaches this week for this. And so you get it like it's 
like whenever I kind of get into this and I appreciate Antonio for enlisting me on this with him is uh, you just, it's a good way to look under the hood of college football programs and hear a lot of insight, especially this time of year. And so I feel like after this story goes up, Kalaja Kansi will probably be more of a household name among college football fans. Um, I don't know if, unless you're an ACC fan, if you know much about him. Um, I'm not saying he's Aaron Donald-ish, but I think there's a, there's definitely some some parallels from Pitt has another short, super explosive D lineman who probably who was a three-star guy who a lot of people missed on just because he was not a measurables guy, but maybe that has changed. So in the in the course of this, there's just some really, really rich material, um, you know, talking to position coaches and some head coaches. I mean, one of the guys on your list, Mike McIntyre, is the new head coach at FIU. But what he really got on my radar was he was the Ole Miss assistant coach who found Patrick Willis. And so he was an ideal person to ask about what you're looking for. And he coached in the NFL and what you look for in linebackers and how the game has changed. And I think the things that a lot – like what I've you know heard and I, what I think Antonio's heard is a lot of the stuff coaches maybe coveted and looked for – not that long ago, aren't things that they're looking for as much now because the game has changed. And Aaron Donald, to some degree, has changed the way a lot of coaches evaluate D-linemen. And some of the rules have changed the way people... You know, it's like... So it's been a really fascinating cross-section to see what people look for and to get in the weeds of the recruiting process. You had a story a couple years ago. The one year that Mel Tucker was at Colorado, right? You talk to him in depth mm-hmm. about his evaluation process, and it was interesting to me because it kind of went against the grain of what you, you're talking about. He didn't want to find the undersized Aaron Donald type. He he was, you know, this is the Nick Saban, Kirby Smart. He was adamant. You have to rec- recruit big dudes. Well, what's it, what was interesting for me at that point, and I, you know, and he and I had talked a lot for that story was I remember thinking and pretty much asking him at this point, like, if you're going to hold to your standards for this, you're going to get a lot of a lot of big, slow guys who may not be able... If you're at, not knocking Colorado, but your recruiting pool is way different than if you're in the SEC. Now, in truth, he didn't stay at Colorado that long. So we don't know how that would have played out from that model. Translating, it's probably... It's easier to get those guys at Michigan State than it is someplace else. Now, going against that, I had a really interesting conversation with a guy who's now a defensive coordinator. And people, you know, I don't want to give away the whole part of the story, but we talked about what he looks for in cornerbacks. And he goes, you know, a lot of guys are looking for 6'2", long, super fast guys who can play corner. He goes, you know, you're going to end up with a lot of pretty dudes who can't transition and actually play cornerback because because the rare guys, there's very few Patrick Petersons and Jalen Ramseys out there. And if they are, they usually go to three schools. So he goes, I'm better served to go find the guy who's 5'10 and a half or maybe 5'11 who, who can really run and transition and stop and start and isn't stiff. He said, because if you got that guy who's 6'2", he may be pretty looking, but he's not going to be able to play most ways you want to play defensive back or have your, you know, scheme-wise. And so I think you get some guys who get to be more realistic about what they're looking for and saying, hey, I'll take my chances on this. And it, it varies on where you recruit, you know. And so just to hear the layers of this, 
and some of the stories, um, I think it's going to be really fascinating for people who are like very intrigued by the evaluation process. I agree. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And, and one thing I would just say kind of from a macro standpoint is when we uh, started the athletic college football vertical, when it was myself and, and Dan Uthman, who was our managing editor then, he's now the NFL managing editor, um, we didn't know what to exactly to make of recruiting because obviously there's some, some you know, 24-7, these existing networks that cover recruiting very well. And so what we have come to learn over the last four years is people cannot get enough recruiting. We, we cannot, we have 30-something writers, and, and even then we can't even possibly write enough about recruiting. People are endlessly fascinated by recruiting. Ari Wasserman has become a very popular writer because of that. And so, yeah, like a story like this that actually goes inside um, that process uh, people are going to eat it up as they have the recruiting confidential series that we've done. If you haven't seen that, um, various writers have talked to high school coaches anonymously, whether it was in the state of Georgia or the state of Florida or the state of Texas, et cetera, about which coaches do the, which college coaches do the best job recruiting their programs. And anyway, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but, um, I don't think there's ever been more interest in how recruiting works than there is right now. Vic Toronox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And uh, we got a great response to Monday's, or Tuesday's podcast with David Ubbin, where we went really in-depth about NIL collectives. This first email from Jacob Worthen, I, this is not, I picked this because I, I heard this point raised by other people as well about something we didn't really get into. Hey, Stu and Bruce, listen to your pod with David Ubbin, and I think you guys missed the concern most fans have with NIO Collectives. I am 37, and I have a wide network of friends that are fans of Washington. We travel to road games, we have season tickets, we spend a lot of money, and we've enjoyed reasonable success of the program. Not a single friend thinks players shouldn't be paid. Not a single friend worries about this being the NFL. I think what every one of us worries about is the disparity between conferences and teams continuing to broaden, and that the ability to pull in donors and influences what NIL can pay for players could narrow college football to an even smaller elite tier, leaving the majority of schools behind. I think Jacob is right. And here's one of the one of the issues that you get with this. Like the poaching that goes on now where certain coaches will t maybe reach out to high school coaches and say, hey, your guy might want to go in the portal, meaning we have spots for him. You know, I don't know 
how when you start, you know, like this is a combination of the NIL and the portal, I think gives that much more of a disparity to the point where in this conversations that I've had with coaches about recruiting, one of them brought up the point where it's almost like some of these group of five teams could end up being farm teams for, for schools where it's like, hey, instead of us signing, you know, these four guys, you guys take them, have them for two years, and then they may end up with us. You know, it's like that kind of thing. And I don't know, um, you know, I think for fans, that's hard probably to look at and saying, okay, there's the, the gap between the haves and have-nots will grow bigger, but even the people who are going to be the have-nots used to be the haves. Yeah, I don't... Uh... I don't know that NIL is on its own. I mean, I think you you may the way you just framed that is right. NIL, the rise of NIL in recruiting, coupled with immediate eligibility for transfers, is causing a, a, tremendous, a tremendous effect. And I said this. I was on a uh, being interviewed on the radio about all this stuff, and I was like, basically, every player in the country on every roster has to be re-recruited every year now. You know, it's not, you don't, you sign them out of high school, then you got to make sure they're still happy as a freshman, as a sophomore, as a junior, as a senior. And with that in mind, you're right. Like somebody else can call up and say, Hey, you know, you're clearly, you know, you, um, you're doing okay there as a freshman. We think you could, we could develop you even better here and look at this great NIL deal we can offer you. And I don't think it's just group of five. I think even within the power five, right? There's haves and less haves. And and that poaching could go on as well. The only thing I would say, though, is, you know, is Washington, Washington is a good program with a good tradition, but I don't think anybody would say Washington is Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State. Are they going to be put at, more of a disadvantage in recruiting behind those programs because of NIL than they are already. They're already, you know, very challenged to beat those schools for recruits. So has NIL changed that? That like there already is a gap there. Is it going to change it that much more? Or is it just going to widen it a little bit though? I mean, some people are holding out hope that it goes the other way, and that if if you know if Washington, because right, there, anybody can do this. You know, we, we, David focused on the Tennessee group. Washington does have one of these collectives. Um, Chris Peterson's actually involved in it. If they raise a whole lot of money, like maybe they could convince some recruits not to leave Seattle and go to Ohio State like they have recently because we can make you a nice, really, a really nice package here. Who knows, right? We're still very early in this. We are very early in this. Okay, Stu, let's get to Parrish. In Sharpsburg, Georgia, Bruce and Stu, I've read about several potential changes to the current clock rules for college football in hopes of limiting game times, and most seem centered on more running clocks a la the NFL. Do you think these potential changes would hurt less talented teams that have relied on pace of play and an abundance of plays as something of a talent equalizer, or would facing less plays against better teams help the lesser talented team? Would love so to an hear interesting your point, and what he's referring to is um, there's been some increasing push to, like I think everybody is concerned about how long the games are. It was pointed out this weekend that the Super Bowl, even with the long halftime show, was still shorter than the average college game. Um, that the that the college should 
should start adopting some of those rules. And, and one would be the stopping the clock after first down, but that wouldn't have as big an effect mm-hmm. as um, out of bounds. You know, every time there's an incompletion in college football, the clock doesn't start again until they snap the next play. In the NFL, spot the ball, clock starts running again. Yeah, but if it's an incompletion, it does. Uh, if somebody, it's uh, not an incompletion. Don't they start it on out of bounds plays? Yeah, but it's not an inc- Yeah, just don't say it on an right, incompletion. Right, okay, though. That's my the bad. Part it's if somebody not, yeah. is pushed out of bounds. Right now in college, yeah. that, that also, you know, as soon as you're out of bounds clock doesn't start again so um i've talked to people in officiating who think you could chop 20 minutes or so off a game if you adopted those rules um i think what he's what what parishes you know what else slows slows down the game targeting sure reviews. um i think that the the idea like when chip kelly was at oregon he definitely used tempo to help close the talent gap and other schools did the same. I don't know that after a decade or so of the hurry up spread offenses that that is having as much of an effect anymore. Um, defenses know how to defenses have adjusted. Um, I, you don't see as many cases of a team. Uh, you, you'll see a team like use no huddle to catch a team off guard on a certain play but in terms of like, oh, by the fourth quarter, they couldn't keep up anymore because of all the... I mean, one thing a lot most teams do now is, rota- is um, rotate out defensive linemen to keep them fresh. So, I don't know. You tell mm-hmm. me. I think that, that, is, that it's already not as much of a talent equalizer as it used to be. So, I don't know that this change would affect it that much. Okay. You have no opinion, I take it. Uh, not, a, not a strong one, no. All right, this next question, and I preface it as as you guys all know, I do work for Fox Sports, so I'll roll into this and tee Stu up on it. It's from Drew in Charlotte, North Carolina. With the recent report that NBC is interested in the Big Ten's television rights to lead into a weekly doubleheader with Notre Dame, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you think this move would impact Fox Bigs Noon's kickoff show. No way would Fox let NBC get the number one Big Ten pick with the 12 p.m., slot being so successful, right? And wouldn't the Big Ten have a vested interest in maximizing that slot, so to speak, i.e. not having their two best games head-to-head at 12 o'clock? So what Drew is referring to here is a report in front office sports this week that that NBC is very interested in uh, the Big Ten deal that's coming up in 2023. Um, Looks at it as the, the, I think the quote was like, this would be the perfect one-two punch with their Notre Dame package. Um, so the first thing to know is the whole deal is up, right? There's no guarantee, sorry, Bruce, but there's no guarantee Fox is going to still have the Big Ten. I think they will, but, right. But it's not like Fox can squeeze NBC out or vice versa. That will be up to the Big Ten. Um, I think Fox will still... I would be shocked if they didn't or we didn't, but... My prediction, yes, with the Big Ten Network... You you know I'll put it out there. I, it's not the first time I've said this. Fox does have a relationship with the Big, the Big Ten. Ten will get out from ESPN entirely, um, and that may seem shocking because ESPN is such a big part of college football. But the the future is pretty clear here. ESPN is going to be uh, think of it as like Fox News and MSNBC. Um, at the the SEC, ESPN is going to be the SEC's network. 
So I think Fox and or NBC or CBS will be the Big Ten's network. I don't think the Big Ten wants to play second fiddle to the SEC now that they have the, you know, what used to be the CBS game. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is there's a, there's a scenario where both Fox and NBC have the Big Ten or Fox and CBS. Um, and in that being the case, you know, um, they would probably do, do it much the way that ESPN and Fox do now where there's a draft. In some weeks, Fox would have the number one pick, and some weeks, NBC would, and uh, which means some weeks, Fox would get to put the, the best game in their noon window, and, and NBC could as well. We don't even know, though, what like what NBC's idea of, NBC's idea of a one-two punch might be 3.30 and 7.30. They might not be interested in noon at all, um, or certainly going head-to-head with Fox at noon. Um, so, you know, the 3.30 window that CBS is giving up is now in play for the Big Ten. So I kind of think the Big Ten, and by the way, again, the Big Ten has so much power in TV. Like, their games are so highly watched. That's why it bugs me a little bit that Kevin Warren kind of doesn't really flex his muscle at all uh, and let Sankey do it. Because they're, to me, forget on-field. TV leverage-wise, they're the same, if not better. Um, I could see uh, I could see a, an arrangement where they have, uh, where, where the Big Ten has a game on each of those, and they have a game on Fox at noon, and a game on NBC at three thirty, and then a game on one of those two um, at seven thirty. I don't think they would split it across three networks, but who knows? Last question is a good one. It's a thought-provoking one from Tom in Delray Beach. Hey guys, Joe Burrow has to go down as one of the most successful and important transfers of all time. In your opinion, who are the most impactful transfers in the history of college football, and then who will be the most impactful transfers in twenty twenty two? Okay, I am going to, I think Joe Burrow is that because he led LSU to a national title on a all-time season. You obviously have a couple of Heisman winners at Oklahoma for Lincoln Riley. They didn't win national titles, but they did win Heismans and Kyler Murray and obviously Baker Mayfield. Um, the one I'm going to say, and I'd be, I, I got to be honest, I had to look this up and then it led me to a story that I didn't know existed because I was thinking Troy Aikman and then... I didn't realize this, but Roger Staubach was a transfer. Like, I obviously knew he was a Heisman winner right. at Navy. But he started out at New Mexico Military Institute back in 1960. And he was actually, uh, you know, referred there because they had told him, I'm going to quote from this story in the Albuquerque Journal. Uh, it's an older story. The Naval Academy had mentioned if I could take a year off and go to Roswell, that's where it was, and maintain a B average, I could get in. They had sent a number of kids out there. My mother said, yeah, this might help you make up your mind. And he said that school is fantastic. He is grateful for the decision. Uh, you'd have to put Roger Staubach on that list. Um, I don't know if this fits. but There's another one like that, Bruce. Well, Doc Blanchard, is... Mr. Okay. Inside and Mr. Outside, right, for Army. Uh, he also started his career at North Carolina. You know who was a ridiculously impact transfer? He didn't, you know, he's the guy I think is the greatest college football player I've seen, and that's Cam Newton. He, yeah, so so I guess the question is, are we talking only straight up, like Joe Burrow went straight from Ohio State to LSU. Cam Newton went to junior college for a year. Um, I, if that counts, I mean, then I'm putting him right in the Joe Burrow category. Yeah, I mean... There's a, then, there's been a bunch of guys who came from junior college who had you know OJ Simpson was actually a junior college guy before he went to USC. 
Um, I don't know if we can count straight up JUCO transfers, but is it? But do we consider Cam Newton a Florida transfer? Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah, it's an interesting, interesting uh, dynamic on that one particular. I think of the Oklahoma guys. Well, first of all, Troy Aikman should definitely be on there. I think of the Oklahoma guys. Um, Baker Mayfield kind of became like he was. He was the starter for three seasons. He became the kind of the face of Oklahoma's rebranding, if you will, under Lincoln. Remember, they had, you know, Bob Stoops had that really one bad season, and he had to fire Josh Heupel. That was not easy. And he brought in Lincoln Riley, and then his first quarterback uh, was Baker Mayfield. So, like, he he had a tremendous impact on that program. The uh, the other ones you kind of go through and think, okay, this guy was Russell Wilson was an early. was an early, it wasn't the portal, but it was obviously when the grad transfer thing was going. He left NC State uh, when Tom O'Brien was the head coach, went to Wisconsin, got there, not wasn't there for spring, impressed them enough to be a captain and had obviously has kept us elevating from that time beyond. Randy Moss. Okay, that's um, another one where we have to like, what are the rules here? He got kicked out of Florida State. Yeah. Um, and he obviously has turned out to be a. He went to the Heisman, right? So he didn't win it, but you know, was a. He's a. He's one of the all-time great up there. So if we're counting him as a transfer, then we count Randy Moss. As... Oh yeah. He did, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a JJ uh, Watt, who's actually mentioned in our recruiting story transferred in as a walk-on from Central Michigan to Wisconsin, really hadn't played much D-line at all in his life, and then tore it up on their scout team and just kind of blossomed into a superstar and a future NFL MVP. So um, part of that question, part of this question also from Tom and Delray Beach is who do we think will be the most impactful transfers in 2022? Obviously an, an easy answer would be Caleb Williams going to USC. Who else do you really like besides Caleb for that role? You know, it's hard not to focus on the quarterbacks. If you're talking about who's going to have the most impact. So obviously Caleb, but I would also say Dylan Gabriel at Oklahoma. I would mm-hmm. say uh, Jackson Dart at Ole Miss. Like these are guys who, um, you know, they're not just plugging a hole. Like they're they they have the chance to come in and be stars. I have a guy for you that one of the coaches I talked to this week who goes, who thinks Jamar Gibbs may win the Heisman at Alabama. Woo! He's running back from Georgia Tech. That is quite a statement for a guy who is talented, but it wasn't like he was a fifteen hundred yard rusher there. Yeah, people think people think he's super smart. He's very versatile. That he will be a great weapon for them. Um, and he's actually probably, you know, coming out of high school, Zach Evans, who ended up at TCU and did mm-hmm. pretty well there. Now he's one. going to Ole Miss. Was even more hyped. But there's a lot of coaches who think Jamar Gibbs is going to really explode there. Um, and he's not even. You know, Eli Ricks, who transferred from LSU there, who's like, who is one of those rare, long, tall corners. I imagine he's going to jump right into a starting spot for the Tide as well. By the way, this reminds me, we should probably bring up somebody who entered the transfer portal this week uh, that was in the news, and that's Jaden Daniels, Arizona State's. He was Arizona State's starting quarterback the last three seasons. Um, Broke out as a freshman, then kind of stagnated. It's been a... This has been a controversial one, to say the least. Uh, there was a video of Arizona State's players like cleaning out his locker, and there was some not nice language used about him. 
there's been tweets to suggest that uh, that people are just happy that he's gone. His mom was a big presence around the program. Um, like it's funny because just on Tuesday's podcast, we you asked I think you asked David right like do you think because of NIL people are going to start treating college athletes like they're pros and I was like huh I don't know if there's anything to do with NIL or not but it sort of seems like people are uh, you know publicly there was an ESPN anchor who publicly on Twitter kind of trashed Jaden Daniels I was like damn that's pretty harsh for a college junior yeah now and I mean for more context the, that anchor Matt Barry actually is an ASU grad and has been pretty I feel like pretty open about his a fandom of the team i don't know if that's a fair way to put it he what's a little different is he like scott van pelt's a fan of maryland right michael wilbon's an unabashed northwest there's a lot of that but matt seems to try to report stuff and uh it doesn't always you know in this case his reporting did not paint a favorable paint Jaden daniels and his mom in a very favorable light yeah, and uh, look, for more on that, we would encourage you to read Doug Haller, our colleague who covers ASU and does a really terrific job on a program that has been in the news a lot. Um, he kind of can give you a lot more background in the reporting, how it related to, in this case, to Spencer Rattler, who's from the area, who had interest, and mm-hmm. then obviously that didn't happen. He ended up at South Carolina. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if Jaden Daniels had decided to leave in December there's a pretty good chance Spencer Rattler would be there instead of South Carolina. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, I don't know, it's, the, ASU is a fascinating program right now for a lot of reasons, and almost none of them seem to be very favorable. Because it's a complete trick. Do you have any sense of, so what? what is Jaden Daniels' transfer portal stock? Because like I said, he's considered to be very talented, um, but he also has not really progressed as a quarter season. It's like I don't have a good sense of what his, where his what his transfer portal stock is. Yeah, I think what will be what I'm I'm interested to see is you have a guy who's from the West Coast. Now, obviously, UCLA has, still has DTR. He opted to come back. Jane Daniels, you know, he's been there a while. It's like when you look at what he's done, he's played in some big games. He's the question with him, I think, is you know who's going to jump on board? Is he does he end up at a Group of Five school? You know, at this point, I, I don't know. I mean, there's certainly schools that have um, that ha- that have quarterback battles going on. But is he going to want to go somewhere where he doesn't? He may not be. No, he's the favorite to win the job. Well, an interesting aspect of this is, you know, we mentioned Joe Burrow before. Joe Burrow didn't transfer until May, right? What well, it didn't used to be all that uncommon for this stuff to take place after spring ball. But because this thing's all been accelerated so much, like the possible landing spots for Jaden Daniels, even in February, are a lot more narrow than they might have been a month ago. A lot of schools have gotten their quarterback. They're set. Um, you know, that narrows the possibilities right there. Yeah, I, and we'll see. I, there'll definitely be interest for a guy who's played a lot. He can run. And, and I think he's had some moments where I think people will be intrigued. I mean, I, as a freshman, he threw for almost 3,000 yards and had a 17-2 to 2 TD to interception ratio. But as you said, this year with all that was going on, you know, 10 touchdowns, 10 picks, and it was a lot of inconsistency. And I think, um, you know, it's going to be a new system. Zach Hill, his, his offensive coordinator this past year, he got forced out in the wake of this recruiting scandal there. And... I don't know what the next step from Jaden Daniels is going to be. Maybe a Mountain West team. Um, 
you know, what was interesting when I was doing those coaching grades is I didn't, it hadn't hit me how many coaching changes there are in the Mountain West this year. And I gave all of them a good grade. So, um, <laughs> you know, good sign for that conference. You uh, just don't want to look back. You just don't want somebody to send this back to you three years from now and go like, really, you gave this guy a D and he turned out to be Luke Fickle? I mean, I've had my share of those. I gave Liberty an F for hiring Hugh Freeze. Look how that's turned out. You did? Yeah. Because of the off the field, because of the baggage. Um, He's obviously a good football coach. I, you know, it's hit and miss. Um, But no, in the past, I I have not been hesitant to give bad grades. But they, like I said, they have to be, uh, there has to be a pretty obvious reason why you're giving somebody a a D. um, Or even a C for that matter. I wonder if that's based on, like, I feel like anything from a B up is good, and then anything from B minus down is like, okay, now you're starting to poke holes at things, but I don't know. How do you look at it? Uh, I feel like anything below a B minus is is bad. Yeah, that well, then um, we're on the same. I didn't know if you were going to say, like, well, where, where I went to school, a C was like an A, uh, <laughs> so you didn't give any bad grades. No, I... If I give a C, it's not good. Yeah, um, it is. It is definitely interesting when you look back at some of these, and you're like, "Oof, I bet this person would really like this one back." Oh, there's been a lot. I gave Kansas. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I remember I gave Kansas an A for hiring Turner Gill. Um, I did give them an F for hiring Charlie Weiss. Um, can I? I um, can not I? that I could have possibly predicted this, but when I looked at the one two years ago. The highest grade I gave anyone was Washington State for hiring Nick Rolovich. Yeah, I'm not sure anybody could have saw how that one was going to play no, out. But there was no pandemic yet. Um, you know, looking back, I stumbled upon this not that long ago, and I, yeah, never mind. Um, one of our colleagues, Mitch Light, who was an editor at the Athletic, who who had worked for Athlons, um, he this is going back ten years, and it's his rankings, and it's got a picture of Brady. I was going to say Brady Hoke. Brady Hoke, yes. I'm going to say Brady Quinn. So his rankings, and I believe Mitch is a Vanderbilt guy. He was not yeah. high on the James Franklin hire. Oh, no. Yeah. So yeah. He did, James Franklin was, was below Todd Graham of Pitt, who didn't last very long there, um, and came in at number 12. That happens, my friend. It happens. I'm just looking at the 2020, my 2020 grades, which, you know, you would think it's too early to... But I, I'm not so Nick Rolovich. I gave an A. I gave Rutgers an A for Greg Schiano. Oops, I gave Washington an A minus for Jimmy Lake. Um, I thought that would have gone better too. So I gave Florida State an A minus for Mike Norvell, and that's very much on the fence. Um, Ole Miss a B plus for Lane Kiffin. Baylor a B plus for Dave Aranda. There you go. Uh, BC a B for Jeff Halfley. Mississippi State a B minus for Mike Leach. Missouri a C for Eli Drinkwitz. Um, even though they didn't have a great this year, year this past year, I still think he's going to make me look dumb. And here's one that's already made me look dumb. Arkansas, a C for Sam Pittman. Oh, yeah, that one I would, yeah. But hey, group of five, Fresno State, an A for Kalen DeBoer. He's already uh, back on his way up. And then on the other hand, <laughs> he gave USF an A for Jeff Scott, and he's not done Struggling. anything. So I think it's about a 50% hit rate is what I'm saying. You know what's weird is I feel like I disagree with you vehemently on a lot of stuff and almost everything you said i would have been in lockstep with it's all a guess um so you're going based on what you know about them to this point 
like you're right i probably um when you were talking about this year's probably putting a lot of uh which which was one you were like i don't understand. oh um you're like i mean you're right joey mcguire in terms of like his track record his uh experience to this point you might have a little bit lower but you just know that some of the guys sam Pittman was one of those guys right i was like why is Arkansas hiring an offensive line coach uh, to compete with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher and all these guys? And he's turned out to be the perfect fit there. I'm curious what, like, and I, I, you probably don't have this at you know handy, but like when you said Joey McGuire, and I'm not saying this is exactly what it's going to be because all coaches are different, but I would have thought Chad Morris was going to do better than he did at SMU. He did okay. Um, you know, he left on his own to go take a bigger job. But you, you have talking a, about Chad Morris when he got hired by Arkansas? No, Chad Morris when he got hired by SMU. He was a, you know, he was at Clemson. He was he was a very very successful Texas high school coach, and he was a he was a good offensive coordinator. You know, they got it rolling with Taj Boyd at Clemson when they started to elevate that program. I was trying to see here if I could find the one that had uh, Chad Morris to Arkansas, but that's not coming up. 2017 is coming up where Purdue got an A plus for Jeff Brom. Yeah, I would go, I would agree with you on that. And then Texas got an A for Tom Herman, which everybody, Ouch. everybody would have said that at the time. Let's not, that wasn't some contrarian opinion. Minnesota, an A for PJ Fleck. <laughs> it's telling us exactly one out of two. USF, an A for Charlie Strong. He's already fired. Oh, you're going to kill me. Like, what, what is, what was I doing? Western Kentucky an A for Mike Sanford. Ouch. Ouch. LSU an A minus for Ed Ogeron. I think they got their A minus worth. You know who you were pretty high on, surprisingly so, back in the day? Who? I'm going to say this name, and I would like to see your face when I say it. You're a big Tim Beckman guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do remember looking that up and being and wincing at that one. San Jose State for an A minus for Brent Brennan. Yeah, you know who you didn't like? Apparently you have softened. I think this is 2012. All right, I'm going to read this to you. After striking out with Chris Peterson, Al Golden, and someone, AD Dan Guerrero turned to an unemployed NFL lifer. Mora has assembled a nice staff and will likely make initial waves in recruiting, but history does not bode well for the NFL bred coaches. UCLA hopes Mora will become its Pete Carroll, but odds are much higher he will emulate Bill Callahan, Charlie Weiss. Chan Gailey and Mike Sherman, man, and Jim called me the asshole. <laughs> wait, Jeez. wait, wait, wait! What was the grade? <laughs> you gave him a D. A D. So this is two two hires in a row where I gave him a bad grade. I I felt bad writing the one uh, about UConn because because he was so gracious to come on the podcast, but um, you know I can't play favorites. Um. The only thing I think I like more than old recruiting rankings is old coach or coach <laughs> ratings because it's like, you know, look, it, we think we know and we don't. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I'm looking at 2017 right now, and I had to go pretty far down the list to find Cincinnati, Luke Fickle, B minus. B minus or D minus? B minus. Okay. It looks like the only. I mean, look, in your defense, and I don't need to be saying those those three words, but like the, the his one year as a head coach at Ohio State, 
it was a struggle, especially by Ohio State centers. A lot of things were out of his control, but the lowest you know. grade of anybody I gave in 2017 ended up winning two conference titles in three years. FAU, a D for Lane Kiffin. Well, I guess that's probably similar tone to why you gave Freeze an F at Liberty. That's I think right. there's there was probably drama related stuff there. I'm Baggage. not sure. Baggage. Yeah, Lane could have gone one of two ways, and fortunately for FAU and for Lane, it went the positive way. All right, so I'm glad we uh, we were debating whether to do this earlier or not. I'm glad we did. We hit a lot of topics. Um, you won't hear from us again till probably uh, the early the week. So February the week of February 28th. Uh, early that week is when we'll come back to you and uh, we'll see you then.